I always test out something new. I'm trying uh -huh. to, I tested out something new here. Yeah, do you remember what it was? Oh yeah, man? the ain't broke, don't fix it. I was, I was broke, testing that one. That was, that was a new one. I hadn't, I'm not, not said that oh. one before. <laughs> That's a really good one though, because it does, it does uh, allow somebody to go, okay, I get it. You know, it, it's not just the ain't broke, don't fix it crowd. They're still trying to fix it, even if it ain't broke. Howdy, and welcome back to the Idea to Impact podcast. Today is part two of our discussion with Dr. Anton Howes, where we kind of dive into the policy recommendations that might be coming or might come out of his work uh, and looking at the inventors and the context that started or led to Britain's Industrial Revolution. Let's get started. I'm sitting here and I'm listening to you talk about the importance of being around inventors, of being exposed, maybe just not to the person, but to the whole process. Um, you know, even just knowing that, you know, what it means to invent and how just knowing that you have the capability or the ability of inventing or designing something. And I'm thinking about Jack, um, the work that I used to do when I was a postdoc, you know, we, we, took kind of makerspace activities um, and kind of the, the thinking that goes along with being a maker and tried to take that into a, a school in, in a location where the kids that went to that school weren't always exposed to inventors or designers or engineers and tried to expose them to that with the intent, with the hopes that they would eventually see themselves as inventors or makers or designers. So to me, you know, your work I think is extremely important. And um, I wanna kind of talk about like how, knowing that like being exposed to inventors is important, how can, how does that impact policy and how does the work that you do, can it impact policy for, for present time? Mm. So, one of the ways I've so I recently set this down um, in the newsletter, a news email newsletter that I, that I write for for just kind of sharing my, my my work. And the way I like to think of this is that, given what I've said about how I think invention spreads, we need to think of it in a. In, there's almost a sort of almost like a like a consumer funnel, the marketing funnel that I'm sure some listeners will be familiar with, right? If they're getting into the business of trying to commercialize inventions and so on which is that it's very similar, right? So for a consumer, you know, that you've got awareness of the product and of those who are aware, there are a few more who actually kind of consider buying. Of those who consider buying, there are only a few, there are even fewer who will actually make the purchase. And then of those who make the purchase, there are even fewer who will actually end up, you know, becoming a consumer champion and then feeding more people into the awareness of it, right? And invention is exactly the same. So you've got the population of the population. There are maybe a few hundred thousand people or million people, perhaps millions of people who come into contact or exposed to the idea of invention. Of those, not all of them will be inspired. Some of them perhaps will come into contact with extremely boring inventors. And unfortunately, the spark is not ignited. Um, perhaps they will just be uninterested. There'll be some kind of factor that means that they just don't get this. They don't receive the spark from them. Of those group, 
Well, now, now we've narrowed it down um, further down the funnel. So we've gone from those who are exposed to those who are actually inspired post-exposure of those who are inspired to become with the improving mentality. You know, a lot of them might get distracted by other things. They might go into the law. They might go into, I don't know, banking or something where they're not going to have as much of an opportunity to be improving things. Um, they might be the sorts of people who will will think of like of things as i said the whining or seeing things as being broken is perhaps the first step but actually the very important second step is actually do something about it doing something about it so maybe the invention the improvement will never leave their heads um and they'll then we can narrow that down further so from the people who are inspired with the improving mentality and are then actually going to be trying to invent things there are going to be those who They'll make prototypes. It'll never, or they'll get things onto the drawing board, but it'll never make it to prototype. Those who get things prototypes made, who can never actually get this thing uh, made properly or, or or sold, there'll be those people who lack the time, who lack other kinds of you know resources, who can't get access to the skills to do these things. You know, I mentioned that a lot of the inventors are practically amateurs and not really skilled in things. Well, they still had to often rely on expert help. They would often self-educate. Um, to try and actually you know, teach yourself to code type thing or right. teach yourself a bit of basic engineering to solve the particular problem you're trying to do. Or they'll have access, they'll try to get access to experts who will be able to do this stuff. So when you've got clergymen like Edmund Cartwright who are trying to improve the, the loom, you know, he does go to Manchester, finds a bunch of mechanics to try and make this thing. They don't believe it's possible and he has to constantly chase them up to actually get them to work on this problem given he's paying them. And they're like, no, 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 it's not, can't be done. Um, so he's, he's constantly chasing them up, but he still required those skills to try and get that kind of thing done. He's the inventor still, and maybe they're now partaking in, in the invention process themselves as well. Um, but often you do require at least access to skills. And so working our way down the funnel, there are going to be those inventors who can't get access to the knowledge to self-educate, can't get access to mm. the skill, relevant skills to make their visions a reality, uh, and then of those people who do finally create a product and they do have an invention, and this isn't necessarily just within entrepreneurship. This is not, you know, not all improvements are improvements that are sold um, or that are commercialized. You know, very often these are people who are improving government, government processes, you know, the postal right. service. Right. How effectively do we run the bureaucracy? How or they're doing stuff that's more maybe services based and there isn't a product as such, but there are in a kind of physical or tangible form, but they're improving, you know, the efficiency of how they run things. Mm. Um, and so, or they're even just doing something like switching out, substituting raw materials for another one. So this isn't always as obvious and it can sometimes be within an organization and just kind of adapting and making that better as well as striking out on your own. But of those people who are finally inventors, you know, and then, then we've finally got things that narrow it down. You know, there are business failures, there's bad luck, there's, again, lack of access to resources, to time and all sorts of other things that finally results in this teeny weeny little sliver at the end, <laughs> which are finally the successful inventors right. who are driving forward human progress and you know, raising our living standards every day, coming up with solutions to our problems, sometimes causing problems. But then fortunately, other inventors are coming around and trying to solve those problems, too. And so those are the people who are driving the Industrial Revolution you know, the acceleration of innovation and the kind of unprecedented growth in living standards that we've seen for the past few hundred years. And they're also potentially the people who are then inspiring people up at the end of the funnel, or the ones that people are coming right. into contact with, uh, and then kind of creating that exposure to invention. Yeah, it's like, it's like one big cycle. 
Yeah. But and so in terms of smaller. <laughs> I've realized I haven't actually answered your question. So in terms of policy, there are things that oh, are yeah, that's right. upstream policies, <laughs> things that target the top of the funnel and things that target the bottom of the funnel. Right. So up, I like to call them upstream or downstream policies that and unfortunately, a lot of innovation policy and a lot of the kind of preoccupation of governments with inventions and inventors focuses on the very narrow group at the end, right? There's tinkering around with incentives for entrepreneurs. You've got various, various countries who have tax credits for entrepreneurs or for inventors. You'll have, you know, R&D tax credits and all this other stuff that ultimately really only affects what it is that the people at the very end are doing. You have all sorts of policies that are about the direction of invention, right? So they're not about increasing the total number of inventors. They're about trying to get the existing people who have the skills and are mm. inventing things and researching things um, to apply themselves to particular problems, right? So prizes, I think, would often fall under that kind of category. Yeah. Um, it'll have an upstream effect as well, that it might you know, right. raise awareness of something. But yeah. the main thing it's trying to do is a downstream thing. Um, tweaking around with intellectual property rights, again, is, I think, a very downstream thing, because most inventors, when they start out, they start tweaking things and tinkering with things and then they learn about the patent system and they go oh my god here's this other whole other thing i now need to learn about to get me to the next stage i think very rarely it's something that actually causes some you know i don't think people are, you know they're born and they grow up and they hear about the patent system and go i'm going to be an inventor because i've heard right. about this thing um, so again a downstream thing and i think the value of looking at the upstream policies you know, the further up the funnel we go um, is that they have the potential to completely change things because they just, you know, if you can increase the number of people being exposed to invention and you can increase the number of people being inspired by that exposure to invention, you're then going to have more people further downstream, right, who are then going to be affected by all the other stuff, right? So you can, you can kind of open the, get, the floodgates, in a sense, and have even more people that you can then deal with um, further downstream as well. I think there's a potential with those sorts of policies to do the greatest good mm -hmm. um, just by even very marginal changes to those things right at the top of the funnel. I was reading your, I was reading your, um, reading your um, the spread of improvement working paper mm -hmm. that you have up on, on your site. By the way, it's um, antonhouse.com. And then you also have a, a blog, right? Uh, and that's, um, the, the Substack. Uh, yeah. Can you give give us that address? So yeah. So AntonHouse.substack.com. Okay, great. Which you can also find via AntonHouse.com, but it, that's the the email newsletter, which is sort of a blog as well, and a lot of first drafts of the book that'll be tying all of this mm -hmm. into in, in, as I'm one whole. I'm some of the graphs at the end of your working paper, and it seems to me that in the kind of beginning of this period that you're, that you're talking and calling the industrial revolution in, in, in England, um, you talk about the connections being of, of two different types. One more with what you call the savants or the knowledge, the specialists, right? The ones that have a, a specific um, a speciality and they know a, a deep dive on, on a small, in a small area. And then later, um, they have connections with what you call fabricants, or I think what we would call probably makers, right? Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that there is this, uh, the first one's almost like when you, you know, somebody wants to go into a doctoral program, a lot of times they'll look for somebody who is doing work in an area that they are interested in. And so they kind of go to the savant to learn that special, specialized um, knowledge. Um, 
But can you talk a little bit about that that transfer from savant connections with savants to connections with fabricators or or makers and how you think that that because uh, it seems like it's it's part of the acceleration the hockey stick occurs around that that switch. Yeah, so this is a distinction. So the savant versus fabricant distinction is not my own, right? This is one that I've adopted from people okay. like Margaret Jacob and various other historians who've been working on this. They've been, you know, looking at the ideas and looking at, you know, what is the impact of, of I guess, things like science and understanding and, and these kind of broader intellectual trends on, on innovation. And so I wanted to work out, you know, for my sample, how much of the connections is with the savant, who, as you say, are there. I would actually say they're less specialised. The savant are kind of the, um, they're the minds, the brains. Okay. The fabricant, the makers, they're the hands. So if you think heads gotcha. and hands. Okay. Right, the, the savants are the, the, the Isaac Newtons and the, right. and the fabricants are the George Stevensons. Right. Gotcha. The, so you've got the specialised people who work in particular industries, the makers, um, and you've got the people who are the theorists and coming up with the new ideas and often involved in with what we'd now call science. Um, natural philosophy is often what they'd have called it in the 17th, 18th century, right. uh, or the new science or the, the new philosophy and so on. Um, so now the interesting thing there is actually the more I've researched since writing that paper, which was a kind of working overview of my, of, mm -hmm. my, of the, the book I'm writing uh, is that I've noticed that a lot of the early savants, uh, maybe people who are actually starting out as fabricants, and they are making elites see them as being something more intellectual um, than otherwise. So they're actually creating distinctions between different types of expertise. Mm. They're saying, you know, the, the traditional form of an expert is someone who knows their subject, has a lot of experience of their subject. So right. let's take uh, navigation. The traditional expert is the person who has gone up and down the coasts of Britain to France right. and Spain countless times, has been aboard a ship and knows the ins and outs of being a ship. The new kind of expert and this is building again on other historians' work who've been looking at these sorts of Tudor changes to, to how these particular uh, fields were progressing. The new kind of expert is one who says, I have learned how to use the astrolabe and all these new instruments, and I know how to calculate my latitude from looking at the, at the night sky. And so I can now have this generalizable knowledge that I can then apply to to this other stuff, right? I don't need to have ever set foot on a ship, but I can tell you how to improve your navigational techniques right. based on the theory, right? right? So you have this idea of expertise being this suddenly this generalizable thing. And you see this played out in industry after industry after industry. So you see it in navigation with the use of latitude first measuring, so celestial navigation um, versus the old way, which is just remembering what's on each coastline right. and having your plumb depth, which would be, you know, your literally your plums in the the piece of lead that you then drop to the bottom of the ocean with something sticky on it so that you could raise the sand and say, okay, well, I remember the red sand is on this coastline and the yellow sand. Right. The shoals are coming up because I'm, yeah, right. Exactly. Which yeah. is your expertise, right? It's right. your, it's your knowledge. It's your experience. But then the new experts are saying that's not expertise at all. That's just experience. Like right. what we need is actual understanding of these things. So the theory is what, is what matters here. Mm. And so they create this new field for themselves and start to elevate themselves above the ordinary um, skilled people or kind of redefine how skill works and then certainly you get this kind of distinction I think by the 17th century where you've definitely got a lot of people who are specialists in 
looking at natural philosophy, looking at knowledge, coming up with new theories, trying to advance science, um, and then these connections with the the fabricant people within industry. And so, you know, a standard example of this might be instrument makers versus the people who are doing astronomy, right? right. So there are, I think, quite a lot of these connections. Um, but it actually gets very difficult in the 18th century to even define who's a savant and who's a fabricant because mm. a lot of the time they're crossing over, you know. An is an instrument maker really someone who doesn't understand astronomy? Surely they know quite a lot about it to be able to do these things. And so right. I've, right. I've discovered that a lot of this stuff is kind of um, social one-upmanship that's going on and is constantly being contested within these different groups. Uh, so that said, however, by the 19th century, I think you are seeing a lot more of invention as this mentality being spread to the shop floor. So we're mm. talking people who are often very uneducated or you know, just about literate, um, and they are coming into contact with people with that understanding of science and that understanding of various processes of theory, if you like. Um, and then often even not just coming into contact in a passive way, but actually doing it proactively, setting up institutions where they're inviting these people to come and talk to a bunch mm. of them after work during the night hours. Mechanics institutions, they're often called. Um, the mechanics being, you know, we now think of a mechanic as someone with a wrench who does a bit of repairs. Right, um, right. To be a mechanic or to be one of the mechanic classes or the operative classes is to be the hands, the person right. doing the stuff. Um, versus the kind of the intellectual. Interesting. You know, M M M MIT's, um, their motto is something like that. It's uh, what, like, uh, whatever Latin is for mind. Uh, may, something in manus, right? Some mind and hand is, is the mm -hmm. same same idea. And um, certainly MIT is known as a, uh, <laughs> there aren't any dummies there. Let's put it that way, right? They're they're very specialized in their in their in their intellectual and theoretical knowledge. But we've been working with MIT on a few different um, projects, mm -hmm. and they are really stressing the manus part, the hand part, and the the making part. And so there seems to be maybe not to the degree um, as, as what was happening, you know, 150 years ago or 200 years ago, but there seems to be a stress. And I'm seeing it at Texas A&M as well, where they want students to be makers. Sure, mm -hmm. you're going to learn your theoretical knowledge from your classes, but they're trying to in give them incentives to get into the making spaces, doing hands-on types of things. Um, so I, so I, I think this is a centuries-old battle you yeah. know, that keeps getting played out. Um, so to give you a few examples, artists. There is a hierarchy amongst artists in the 18th century that stems back probably around to the Renaissance where there are tiers of art. Hmm. And so if you're someone who just does a still life, ah. know, paint a flower pot or something, right. you're just using your hands. There's no intellect. There's no thought mm -hmm. going on there. Still life is like the lowest of the low. Maybe a bit above it, you're going to get landscape because there's a bit of intellect in choosing right. the kind of landscape and, 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 and doing something with that. There's maybe a bit of symbolism you can start to introduce. Above that, you're going to get genre painting, which I guess would be painting poor people who right. aren't you know, right. paying, paying for you to, to, to do their portrait. You're just kind of doing city life, that sort of thing. So genres of some kind. Think of all those Dutch paintings where it's kind of people out in the farm right. or people in the city doing all sorts of things. Um, above that, you're going to get portraiture, uh, partly because that's what pays. 
frankly, but it's also where you're starting to put it. There's, you know, there's the great intellect that you need to put into the, into, you know, the expression and what you're conveying and so on. And the highest of the high is what's called history painting, which isn't necessarily history as, as we think sure. of it, but allegorical stuff. So, you know, you're, you're imagining scenes that you've never seen before, you know, the resurrection of Christ or something. Mythology from right, religion, yeah. right. Um, or from history. It can actually right. be from history. And then you're conveying things. So you're using your intellect, first of all, to create the scene, to create how you're going to show these mm -hmm. the people within it, the, right. the scene itself. And then you're going to put in lots of Easter eggs where it's, you know, things that people who right. know their classics are going to go, ha, 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 what a funny little pun <laughs> they've made by, you know, right. depicting such and such here and such and such there. And so... History painting is considered the highest of the height because it has the greatest intellect, right? So you've already got this tension there between the intellectuals yeah. and the manual uh, parts. But it's of, both of because drawing. you still have to have the brushstrokes down. You still have to. And have you need both, you need, right? But, yeah, yeah. But I think there's a battle going on, and often in things like artists as well. You know, post 18th century, you start to get more and more emphasis, I think, on the intellect versus the actual kind of manual skills. Sometimes they think you need a bit of both, but they often think you can't just have the manual skills. You To be a good artist, you need to um, be something more. And it's also gendered as well. I mean, you know, there was a wide belief that women can't be history painters, that they're mm. not intellectual enough. And then someone like Angelica Kaufman comes along, ends up being the most famous you know, right. history painter in all of Europe in the 18th century, but she's seen as this weird exception and everyone else is doing their still lifes. Um, so you've got this, you've got that kind of constant battle, I think, the one-upmanship, as I say, uh, and you see it in, in other things as well. So even in the 17th, uh, so 16th century, amongst shipwrights, you've got the people elevating themselves in terms of expertise. Uh, and, you know, fast forward to the 20th century and, You've also, you know, I think a lot of the emphasis on makers today is as a counter reaction to, of some sort or some kind of visceral reaction almost to over intellectualization in, of various spheres and people saying we've placed way too much emphasis on academic achievement and not enough on people actually applying their knowledge or doing it in a particular or, 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 or coming up with particular ways in which you're actually going to do things and make things. I see that yeah. in um, my own experience. I'm 51, so I've, I, I've seen a generation push through. I remember when I was coming, uh, going into university and in the college years, there was an expectation of getting uh, a degree uh, mm -hmm. in higher education uh, because that's how you're going to avoid working with your hands, right? It's <laughs> how you're going to avoid working at a fast food restaurant or digging ditches or something like that. And so it was your ticket, so to speak, into that intellectual world, even if it's not, um, you know, intellectual, as we're talking about it with the history paintings. But then I see a shift now with my own children who are around this age group. And, it, and, and, and I see it also with the mentality of the students at Texas A&M. They're, they're almost there to get their technical um, license. You know, it's almost like I'm getting my plumbing license, but it's just... Uh, in other words, what job can I get with this, right? What, mm. what can I do with this? What can I, what can I create with this? And so there's this idea of it being a more uh, a technical license of what I'm going to do. And that's the question, right? Oh, what are you studying? I'm studying history. Well, what are you going to do with that, mm. right? Uh, that, that's the, and so there seems to be this drive socially uh, to be able to apply, 
right? Mm -hmm. You need application. Whereas even, you know, whatever, 30 years ago, I remember the application wasn't as important and probably it was less important 30 years before that. So there probably are these swells. Yeah, I've certainly seen that too, Jack. Like, so I think under undergraduate, certainly there was that, like, you're here to get your degree. There isn't so much of an application. And now, especially with, you know, the groups of students like in our May's business school where it's, yeah, you're here to get the like academic knowledge, but what are you going to do with it? Like how, you know, Mm -hmm. so it's, you know, there, there's very much an expectation of you have to go to class and you have to learn that stuff, but like you have to be in the extracurriculars, you need to be networking, you need to be applying yourself you know, getting your internships. Um, and I can see how that can be very overwhelming, you know, mm. for, for students these days, but, you know, it's, they have to have the academic knowledge and we're also expecting them to, you know, do something with it. Turn, turn it into a salary or turn it into a job or turn it into something, yeah. right? A position mm-hmm. of some sort, as opposed to, let's say, a classical curriculum, which was knowledge for knowledge's sake or something like yeah. that. Yeah, Two extremes, obviously. But what, what are the applications uh, that, that you see, uh, Anton? Um, you know, I often, when I'm, I'm presenting, you know, papers that I'm working on, I get all wrapped up in either the history or the, or the problem, right? And I go, well, isn't it fascinating that this happened? Or I, I found this connection here. And inevitably, they always say, okay, Jack, and so what, right? <laughs> what, what's, what's, where's the payoff on this? How does this now affect us going forward? Are there things that we can pull out of, uh, obviously the very detailed work that you've done on this um, to try as either educators, as research, as researchers, as makers, as entrepreneurs to um, have a better experience along that idea to impact journey that we're trying to make? Hmm. So I think, I guess the, the main thing that I would say is missing from a lot of the policy, and this is coming back to the to the funnel that I mentioned earlier, right. is that we don't have much in the way of those upstream policies. And there's a few reasons for that. One of the reasons for that is that they're really difficult to define. If you say, how do I increase exposure to inventors? You start to get into a lot of buzzwords, a right. lot of BS, and right. a lot of kind of very broad words about how to, you know, lots of, lots of, very fuzzy words about how exactly to do this. It's very difficult to come up with a policy where you, you know, it's, it's all very well saying we need better education, but how do you do that exactly? Um, I think that's something that a lot of fields that also cover that sort of thing. Uh, Beth, I'm sure, you know, in education, you get a similar kind of people will kind of look, look at you a bit funny saying, you know, are you actually just trying to pull the wool over my eyes and there's nothing concrete there. Mm. And I think upstream policies suffer from that, that problem in a sense, because saying we need to increase the rate at which we inspire people to become inventors is a very hard task. So I've been thinking thinking a lot of, along those lines, and I guess trying to do some of that application myself and trying to come up with specific things. So in this country, so I do a bit of work on the side for, I do one day a week with the Entrepreneurs Network, which is a small think tank in the UK, um, specifically for, uh, so it's a network of entrepreneurs and, and trying to kind of act as a, something, an organization specifically for them. And so my role within that is to try to come up with pro-innovation stuff along, alongside all the, other, all the other reports that they're doing. So one of the things I'm working on right now is suggesting that maybe in, in this country, um, you know, we've got an honours system. You know, we've, we're, we have a monarchy 
uh, and the monarch the monarch gives out honors that people take seriously everyone loves to become a knight or right. to become a member of the order of the british empire or officer of the of the british order of the british empire um, but what's striking about those honors is they're often given for i mean overwhelmingly they're given first of all to civil servants to military people to mm-hmm. uh people in civil society where even if you are an entrepreneur and receive one of these awards, it's almost certainly because you have done some charitable giving. Mm. It's not for the actual entrepreneurship. It's not actually for the innovation. It's not for the thing you actually did to increase people's living standards. It's for the what you did to the kind of giving backstage after becoming quite successful along the lines, most of the time. So one of the things I was suggesting is perhaps we should take a, a leaf out of the book from some of the stuff that was happening in the 19th century and say, we need to be more proactively honoring inventors. Perhaps there should be an order of chivalry specifically for great innovators. Oh. Now, strikingly, in the 1830s, this actually did happen. There were a few pro-innovation uh, proselytizers, evangelists, if you like, within government uh, who were trying to push for certain existing honors to be used to that end. So there was... This is getting a little bit complicated, but before Queen Victoria, so from the Georgians onward, uh, Britain is in a personal union. The monarch is also the monarch of Hanover, as well as being of Britain, right? So when George I becomes king of Britain, he was already elector of, of Hanover. Now, this is lost when Victoria ascends to the throne, because in Germany, the line of succession had to follow the male line. Um, but very briefly, there is a Royal Gelfic Order, which is a kind of Hanoverian knighthood, which they start using in the 1830s to reward inventors. So Charles Babbage is offered one. Mm. Uh, uh, people like William Herschel, the person the, who discovers Uranus, the planet Uranus, and mm. then his son, who is also an inventor and, very, and scientific pioneer, friend of Babbage's, he also gets one of these Gelfic knighthoods. And so there was this pre- there is this precedent for trying to do the same. And also, in general, in the Victorian era, one of the things you notice is that there's all these statues popping up. Now, if you look into it, you think, okay, maybe there's just a Victorian mania for statues. But if you actually look at the content of those statues or the kinds of people they're honouring, they're very often specifically people who aren't generals. They're specifically people who are perhaps people who have contributed to the arts of peace, so to speak. You know, they're great great minds in literature there's the project to try and get a statue of gutenberg you know for the printing press set up and right. try to honor inventors trying to make invention uh, more more visible trying to get statues of james watt in very prominent places as well so there is this old victorian project of where they are thinking quite deeply i think about what i now call upstream policies whereas today we've neglected this nearly all of the policy is about money it's about you know prizes and tax credits and right. patents and and funds and grants we very rarely think about honor and prestige and the social status of invention Uh, and i think that's actually especially relevant today given so much of invention we've only recently seen i think the rebirth of the the you know the heroic founder in silicon valley where a company seems to revolve around this person you know for decades we haven't had that at all we've had big faceless conglomerates and, you know, shareholder capitalism has resulted in these big companies where a lot of the invention is taking place, but it's within R&D labs. It's very in, impersonal. The patents, are, you know, we'll say Xerox got a patent, not this specific inventor. When actually, if you look drill down into the details, you've got this whole ecosystem of, of inventors who are often doing contract work for one company and then for another company. They're inventing stuff in their garage and they're selling it to this company. Um, and that's kind of like we're tearing the bark and finding all these these inventors kind of 
around doing all this stuff, but I think it's, they've been in the dark for too long and we should be kind of shining a light on them properly uh, because I think that has that exposure effect in particular. Right. I'm also reminded Beth, um, you know, certainly this last year, there's been a lot more online education. And even before that, the, the, the question has come up uh, because online education has been around before lockdowns and, and social distancing. But the question was, well, what does the university really do? And why, why go to university anymore? Why leave and go to this other place that has buildings and places where you live and attend classes in person? And yeah, sure, there's some things that you need labs and you need some hands-on stuff. And maybe those are the exceptions. But what's the real value that universities add uh, that I can't just get from watching a series of YouTube channels mm. or I can get from an online uh, lecture. And Anton, what your research is saying to me is that the thing that's missing from online is that bumping into each other are those people connections mm. and that the university is really good about having really smart people kind of just walking around campus doing things and um, bumping into each other. Now, they might be so siloed that there's no cross-pollination of disciplines and things like that, but those things can be perhaps addressed administratively, but without a space, a physical space, non-virtual space, I would think that would be difficult. And maybe you can talk about this, unless you say that, no, Jack, majority of the, of the connections were actually by written correspondence or something. You know, They were just writing letters to each other. They didn't really hang out with each other. I would imagine that they were actually physically at some point connecting though, correct? So I think the face-to-face -face connection matters for the simple reason that it's more inspiring. You're more likely to pick up an idea from someone if you talk to them. Uh, or if, if you're someone who's observing them, I think right. that you can pick up the idea, you know, through just kind of just seeing how they do it, right? I mean, this is actually a striking thing though about YouTube and, and about the proliferation of online video which is that perhaps we've actually broken a very significant barrier, which is to tacit knowledge. Mm, right. You know, this, like, this kind of stuff that you can only learn by doing and seeing and observing. You can now actually learn that stuff just by opening a bunch of videos of plumbers who are you know, right. fixing things and you don't necessarily need to actually go and uh, actually find this, this person in person. You can do it remotely for the first time. Whereas traditionally, of course, knowledge has been bounded by the written word. Um, or the spoken word, or you know, the communicated, you know, from our brain to this, this, right, this right. To, to text, to then be interpreted and perhaps misinterpreted or misunderstood by the receiver. Now that we've got direct video of, of these people, it, it really changes things quite significantly. That I think hasn't reached its full potential though, and I think that there's exciting stuff to come there in terms of, you know, obviously the, as more and more content gets uploaded and more and more of this stuff becomes uh, available, the the barrier in terms of you know, lack of access to skills, lack of access to knowledge is really rapidly shrinking. It's just, it's, it's, it's just disappearing. But I do think that in terms of serendipity, that's extremely important. Um, as you say, I mean, universities are perhaps one of the ways in which they do this, but I mean, I'll put it this way, you know, I, I've said that invention is viral, but invention or the improving mentality I think has popped up lots of different times within human history. And it has rarely become so viral. There's something special about Britain in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries 
where it becomes especially viral. And I think a lot of that is to do with institutions. It's to do with inventors, not just not just lobbying for certain laws, and which they do very successfully in certain periods, but also specifically that they they organize themselves into groups. They solidify those social connections um, beyond just the exposure connections, but the actual ties between them as people ongoing throughout their careers, throughout their lives, to the extent that they make it much more likely that people coming into contact with one of them comes into contact with actually a whole group of them. Right. right. So you get famous societies like the Lunar Society at Birmingham, which a lot of people will have heard of. You get famous. Um, there's groups like the Royal Society set up in the 1660s. There's a whole bunch of earlier precursors that basically nobody's heard of, um, but are attempts to try and get that sort of thing going. Uh, there's so I wrote my the, the, the book that I've just published um, a few months ago. Um, Arts and Minds is a history of another of those organizations, which is the Royal Society, now Royal, used to not be, but the Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce, which is set up with the specific idea of the Royal Society is focusing too much on science and theory. We need an organization for practical applications of things and for promoting invention and the application of that knowledge. Again, another society that lots of people come into contact with. And actually, increasingly in my data set, you start to see societies popping up as being seemingly the, the, the source of that exposure. Mm. Sometimes people getting involved for other, for other motives and then as coming into contact with so many inventors, that becoming a part of their identity as well. I'm, maybe I'm just negative. I, just, I, I think, um, and I'm, I really hope that with the pandemic and the lockdowns and people being forced to be online, maybe that'll kind of change um, how comfortable people are with making connections online. I know that um, my first year in my PhD program, I was still working in Houston. And so I was trying to do it online and, you know, I was commuting for class, but not spending any time during the workday, just being in the office so that I could bump into these people. And I actually ended up quitting my job after the first year, moving to College Station to finish my program because I was missing out on all of those moments mm. where, you, you know, you're in the, the break room and you're having a cup of coffee or tea and having that conversation with somebody that you, like maybe you had in class or you just would never get a chance right. to know. And that was just, that was a really big change for me and what led to some of the work that I was doing just because I had, you know, moving to College Station and being in the office, being in the building, having those moments where you talk to people and, um, you know, getting out of the silo, as Jack mentioned, a and like, we're this huge university and we have a terrible silo problem. People tend to stick into in their area. And, and it wasn't until I started taking elective courses, like in sociology, where, you know, I had a class about social justice and I brought over the education piece. We really started talking about, okay, how can we take what we're learning here about racial injustice and then try to educate people about that? Um, I just don't, I, I could never have done that through like a Zoom meeting, you mm. know? So I, I, you know, I think that there's technology coming out of all of this that's allowing people to make connection with better connections, but It'll be interesting to see how in maybe 20 years, how maybe we might define bumping into people differently based on what's going on. I was gonna say my, my one son, um, he was 
is going to a university in America that everybody knows. Let me just put it that way. And uh, but he had we had to do it online. I asked him. I said, "What's different than you know being in class?" He goes, "All the materials great. I mean, they have technology that makes it very very easy to learn the material. But what I'm missing is that after class is over and I walk out of that room, talking about it with my my colleagues with mm -hmm. uh, with other students." Sure, I can ask the professor or the lecturer some additional questions, but I'm still kind of in the technical part of it. But the exploration of the idea, you know, the furthering of the idea, I don't have that. And he he stopped he stopped going. And I have a I have a, a nephew who did the same thing. He was at a, a large uh, state university in Texas, and with the lockdowns and everything, he said so much is online. I'm basically in my dorm room all day, and so he stopped going too. So those are anecdotes. Clearly, anecdote, anecdotes, um, but if they hold across a certain percentage of the population, there seems to be a natural thirst for that, for that connection. And with Zoom right now, I have to schedule the bumping in. Right, we have to let's bump into each other at 10 a.m. or something like that. And it would be interesting if there's technology that would allow for that um, in a more in a more virtual in a more virtual way. But maybe, uh, and this is uh, Anton. I wanted to ask you about this uh, without sounding uh, like I, um, you know, listen to a lot of conspiracy theories or anything. But talking about the future and industrial revolution, uh, the World Economic Forum, the kind of guy that runs that, Klaus Schwab, he's been talking for the last few years about the fourth industrial revolution, and I'm probably, you know, just uninformed. But I always thought there was just really one industrial revolution or there were maybe different industrial revolutions within different countries, but they were all kind of the same packet that maybe started uh, in England. Um, what, what's that all about? What, is that, what does that even mean? Yeah, so, I mean, historians have from time to time identified a second, maybe a third one as well. So I think it kind of stems from that. Okay. Um, so the second one, I think, is the most clear. The first one is the most clear to find, right? This is the thing that's happening in Britain in the 18th century. Right. The one right. that I said, you know, I say Industrial Revolution, you say cotton, right, right. steam, coal, Oliver Twist. Now, I actually think that bit's the wrong bit. And actually, right. that's the, the wrong way to think about it, because the Industrial Revolution is actually something that's affecting all industries, from agriculture to watchmaking, mm. including gardening and architecture and you know, building techniques and inventing cement and safety improvements and what have you all along the way, yeah. including medical techniques and so on as well. You know, there's a, the industrial revolution is also the era of the birth of the novel and the all right. improvement of various musical instruments and, you know, the invention of vaccination, right? This is all right. of these things are happening concurrently because they're all part of, I think of the same thing that's going on now. The thing about the other industrial revolutions, when people start to count them, is they I think they're falling into that trap of associating this change with particular technologies. So the second one you'll often hear is this late 19th century trend towards electrification, mm. towards the identification of new chemicals. It's, it's a chemical revolution. It's to do with the mass production of steel, uh, identifying of new synthetic things, of being able to do synthetic agriculture, synthetic textiles, gotcha. um, identifying new elements, and so on. So it's a chemical thing. It's 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 and it's very tied up with with electrification. I'm not actually the thing about the third is I've seen so many different ones, and I, I very rarely hear of any historian saying 
you know, here's my book on the third industrial revolution. No, it's maybe they'll talk about mass manufacturing in the 20th century or something like that. Okay. It's, it's not really there, I don't think. Now, the fourth one, I, to be honest, I think it's a, a World Economic Forum buzzword that a lot, of, ah. um, a lot of big corporations or people working with them love to cite it as a thing because it gets them a bit more support for some of the stuff that they're trying to do in other realms. So whether it's from cryptocurrency type stuff to 3D printing or the next stages of telecommunications and so on, I think they're, they're searching around for new technologies that they think will be trans, as transformative as old ones. Um, whereas the reality is that if we define the, the Industrial Revolution as being this acceleration of innovation taking place in Britain in the 18th century and a bit earlier, well, actually, that's just continued to the present day. We can draw a pretty straight line, actually, on a log graph, right, right. where right. a kind of perfect exponential line for, for GDP per capita, because it's never, there isn't actually a slowdown period. If right. anything, it right. keeps accelerating, getting faster and faster and faster and faster. There are, it's very difficult to identify any break points. I know people lately have been a bit worried that there's maybe been some kind of stagnation since the 1980s, which actually very much goes against the whole fourth industrial revolution narrative in some mm -hmm. ways. You know, that I, I think this has become a useful buzzword for people to point to for their own ends when it comes to promoting certain projects. But yeah, I like to say that there's one industrial revolution, we're still living it. Gotcha. Gotcha. So yeah, it's just a um, industrial revolution has that power, that transformative air to it, right? That, oh, we're on the verge of something completely new and completely transformative to our. our, our our way of life, to our economy, to our, our political definitions, right? Because like you said, so many things happened around those times. Um, okay, thank you for that. And I have one other clarifying question that I'm gonna <laughs> sound pretty silly asking. Um, what's the difference, I know what the United Kingdom is, but what's the difference between England and Britain when we're talking about this time period? Because I know sometimes we'll, are they synonymous or is there a historical shift at one point yeah so they're separate they're separate uh they're not the same thing so england so the reason i've often said i'll, I'll start with i've said britain oh i mean england actually right, specifically. Exactly. Well, yeah. england um plus wales plus scotland plus i think maybe the isle of well yeah england plus wales plus scotland is britain okay now okay. england kind of subsumes wales um, for, you know, back in the Middle Ages and does this formally in the 16th century. So the King of England, there is no King of Wales by the 16th right. century um, because it's been conquered by England for so long. Uh, Scotland is separate, but um, in 1603, there's a union of the crowns and that the Scottish king inherits the English crown and so effectively becomes king of both of the countries. And at the same time, England has been gradually conquering Ireland and settling it with right. its own people and trying to kind of, and claiming that they, they are also the, the monarch of Ireland. And so you end up with a kind of very complicated situation in which the, the English monarchs are claiming that they're also the monarchs of Ireland. They're also claiming, by the way, that they're the monarchs of France, but that's a whole other story right. um, that's kind of left over from before. <laughs> uh, and then the king, the king of Scotland actually becomes, after Elizabeth I's death, also the king of England. And then eventually in 1707, uh, you get a union of the crowns. Or so you, you, sorry, you get an actual union, active union, where England and Scotland are formally united um, as a single country of Great Britain. Gotcha. And so that's the United Kingdom. So the United Kingdom is actually a bit later, which is that the 
the crown of Ireland is formally united with that ah. of Great Britain in, I think, 1801 or 1800, 1801. And so the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland is the full title. And actually, what's interesting is you get all sorts of different um, phases throughout this, that Scotland in the 18th century is occasionally referred to as North Britain uh, mm. as part of the kind of uni pro-unification <laughs> right. uh, propaganda um, since then, of course, the, you've, got, you've had Scottish nationalism, there's been devolution in, in Wales, so that there's now a Welsh Assembly, there's now a Scottish Parliament again, that things have kind of turned back in the 20th century in, in some ways. And Ireland, of course, um, uh, well, most of it, except for Northern Ireland, becomes a, an independent country. Uh, so it's a very complicated thing. But when, yeah, when, I, when I talk about 16th to 19th centuries, I have to be careful sometimes to make sure I'm saying, right. when I say Britain, I really mean the Ireland. Yeah, okay. sometimes but sometimes i actually mean both of the islands of, of right. great britain and ireland you know it's it's a pretty complicated thing so if i'm if i'm welsh am i am i a britain yeah if you're welsh you you could be british yeah or you you would you might self-identify as british would would, um, would i would most welsh self-identify as british or do english identify welsh as british <laughs> Oh, it gets, oh, uh, I mean, you've certainly got Welsh nationalists, <laughs> right. so they would say they're Welsh first, gotcha. okay. second, but actually, I think, again, it's also changed with the times, I think, yeah. uh, in the age of empire, um, especially in the early 20th century uh, and late 19th century, a lot of people define themselves as, as British, because it ties them together with all these other countries around the world, and right. kind of more, almost kind of global identity as being British. Uh, I think I'm more confused uh, <laughs> than I was before. You, less, um, less clear. Um, less clear. If you break it down, there's Ireland, Scotland, Wales, England, but then England starts to get unified with more and more of them. So are we safe with Britain? If we say Britain, we're covering more? I think, I mean, I tend to say British because Britain is the is, is the island of Britain, right? So Scotland, Wales, okay. and England all combined, um, and Ireland is often associated with it. But a lot of the trends that I'm talking about are primarily, as I said, actually happening in London, um, and often those people, same people, are are then they're maybe going to other parts of the country when they start commercializing com commercializing stuff or they start building up factories and stuff. So that the north of England becomes famous for being the heart of the Industrial Revolution because that's where a lot of the factories are and a lot of where the stuff is actually made. Mm. But the actual center of a lot of the invention still happens to take place within the capital city. Um, do, so do where the capital city is all outside of London, like kind of think people from London are of a different kind. I mean, is there, you know, like people in Texas are really proud of being from Texas and everyone else kind of like sees Texas as this weird place. So do people in England, is there kind of like people that live in London and there's everybody else or? Yeah, I think there's probably a perception. A lot of people outside of London within England will identify as English. <laughs> I think because they see the Londoners as being these metropolitan elites and so on and so forth even though actually most Londoners are from you know they might be immigrants they might be people from actually they're just young people who've come from other parts of the country because that's where a lot of the jobs are and you know right. how cities tend to suck in everyone from all over the country and all over the world especially a, a right. big city like London yeah. uh, I mean like, strikingly that London's always all... been a huge thing like that it's always I mean I've found stuff from the 18th century where they're complaining that London's too big that it's like a, like if, if we think of the country as a body 
that it's like an overswelled belly or kind of it's a sign of some kind of disease or something you know it's very diverse. I mean, uh, like uh, Chiswick, which is where aunt, my sister lives, you know, it's uh, a lot of uh, expats. So, you know, they've got neighbors from Italy and mm-hmm. Chile and Argentina and, you know, Croatia, all, you know, all over. So it's, to me, it's a very interesting city because of that fact. But I could see how people from outside of London might be like, it's a, a whole different part, you know, it's a whole different country, you know. Yeah, and you see it, I mean, in the same way that America is polarized between cities and, and right. country. Right. I mean, I think it's a very similar thing in a lot of other countries as well. I mean, Britain included yeah. is the cities that will vote differently to the country and the rest of the country and so on. There's something yeah. very interesting about Texas I learned, and Beth, you grew up here, I did not. I, I'm from New Jersey and the East Coast of the United States, is that in almost any school in the United States, when you're a kid, you say this pledge allegiance to the flag. And I'm not sure if you're aware of this, Anton, but there's this pledge that you tend to say. In Texas, you say that same pledge to the flag of the United States, like everybody else. And then you say a pledge to the Texas flag. <laughs> I think it might be the only state where you are, you know, not only identifying as a United States citizen, but I'm a Texan too. Uh, mm-hmm. So it, it is a very different place here. Um, yeah. and if there's nationalism within a state, I think Texas definitely Texas definitely has it. Yeah, we want, I mean, like people joke about like Texas, you know, seeding from yeah. the United States. And like at one time, Anton, Texas was its own country right. um, before it became part of the United States. And people is, and I say joke, but like there are people that, probably legit would think that Texas should be its own country minus Austin. Austin can <laughs> stay with everybody so else. So Austin is the London of Texas. That's London, yes. right? Austin is the London. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Yes, it is. And especially now that everyone from California is moving to, to Austin, people, you know, people say like, you know, there Austin has the slogan of like, keep, keep Austin weird. And, and right. the rest of Texas for the most part is like, yeah, keep it weird. Like just keep everyone who's weird there put a big wall around it and keep it <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah oh so um this has been really fun i learned a ton i, yeah. I learned i learned so much and thank you for for your time um tell us you, you you talked a lot about a book that you've been working on but you also have other books that you've either put out or are working on as well can you tell us about what's next for, for you anton as far as what, what should people be looking for if they want to learn more about the work that you're doing? Um, so the book that I've just had out, Arts and Minds, How the Royal Society of Arts Changed the Nation, that's a kind of extended case study, if you like, from my work, which is t- telling the story or telling the, the full history up to of, of an organization called the Society of Arts, which, as I said, was set up by inventors in the mid 18th century to promote invention. They used to give prizes for non-patented inventions. So they're trying to fill a gap that wasn't already being filled there. And then later on, they started um, holding exhibitions, including the great exhibition of 1851, the one at Crystal Palace, the famously now the first of the world's fairs as they later become to be known. Um, and it does a whole bunch of other stuff. I, I like to characterize it's a very weird organization. I like to characterize it as Britain's National Improvement Agency, mm. a voluntary subscription funded improvement agency, in anything <laughs> and everything. So it's a very weird, wacky story of an organization that defies any kind of uh, proper categorization. There's nothing else quite like it. Um, but the book I'm working on right now 
is, I guess, drawing together all of the stuff that we've been talking about here. It's about this database of inventors. It's about the lessons that we can draw from those inventors. It's about explaining why it is that this, as I said, dreary, wet island in the North Atlantic <laughs> ends up being the site of this acceleration of innovation and describing, you know, decade by decade, exactly what's going on in, in this country. It's something that I've noticed hasn't really been shown in a way that we have all these histories of the economy, we have a lot of histories of particular technologies and so on, but we don't have this overall story of, of what the inventors are up to, what kind of institutions are they forming, how are they making the improving mentality more and more viral, how does this whole thing get going? So I don't even have a title for that, but that'll, that's the thing I'm working on right now. But if you're interested in reading, I guess, bits of what's going into that, I've got my Substack, uh, antonhouse.substack.com, as I said, uh, where you can essentially see me kind of updating people on, on, on what, my what I'm researching at the moment. A lot of the stuff that's going into that is effectively a first draft, bits of the first draft, some or tangents or offcuts, a sort of director's cut okay. um, from what will be the final product there. And so going to Anton House, all one word, A-N-T-O-N-H-O-W-E-S.com will take you to the Substack and everything as well, right? Yeah, and you'll be able to see everything else that I've done on my on that website as well. Yeah. Okay, great. And we'll have links in the description and in the show notes on where to get your books and how to um, both access the, the newsletter and, and subscribe as well. But um, thank you so much. This has been fascinating. And again, I continue to learn. Beth and I keep, uh, you know, kind of joking, but maybe not that in, you know, five to six years of doing this, we're going to have some type of advanced degree in, in a, innovation science research broadly because we we, we well, that or we're going to be inventors because this is this right. is our bumping in so right. this, is, bumping us, into each this other. is us doing yeah. it virtually so yeah thank you so much anton um i enjoyed this conversation i enjoyed i'm i i enjoy learning about british history so this was especially fun for me and um but i haven't spent much time you know thinking about the industrial revolution so this was a great great conversation and we appreciate you uh joining us and i'm jealous that it is the end of the work day for you and you know you can go and have your adult beverage and i'll, <laughs> stick, with my, I'll, I will stick with my coffee so um, thank well thanks for having me on again. it's been great fun absolutely yep and we will see everyone next time on the next episode of the idea to impact podcast have a good one <laughs>